When Luke wrote those words, words from Jesus in 90 AD, looking back through the narrative of the story of Jesus going into Jerusalem, Luke knew that the temple had in fact been destroyed in 70. And when he recorded these words written by Jesus 60 years before, what he was sharing with his disciples who faced a Roman empire that was persecuting them as well as the original Jewish Orthodox uh, authorities who also accused and persecuted the Christians for being responsible for for the temple's demise. When he writes these words to his church in Luke, he's trying to give them assurance that when all that you've stood for falls to the ground and your greatest hope goes up in smoke, it is not the end of the world. It was Jerusalem's version of Aleppo, only worse. For not only was Jerusalem the capital of Judah, The temple was the White House, the Capitol, the Washington Monument, and the World Trade Centers in one. It was a complete disaster. Not knowing what to say, his disciples asked, when will this be when Jesus said the temple will fall? Instead of giving them an answer, he gives them infinite and eternal hope. Be careful, Jesus said, and watch out for all the false prophets and doomsayer preachers who are going to try and get you to believe that the end is near and, oh, by the way, send us a check so that we can build our new building. There's a whole business plan with plenty of doomsayer preachers on TV, by the way, and a manual to go with it. Don't fall for it, he warned them. I know where Churchill got his famous words after the bombing of Britain in World War II when he said, stay calm and carry on. They had to come from this text when Jesus says to them, when you see this happening, keep your head and don't panic. Jesus said, this is just routine history and no sign of the end. In other words, when it looks like the sky is falling, it's not. There will be wars and upheavals and ugly elections and good and bad presidents, but do not give into the despair of thinking that the world is coming to an end because yours did or did not get elected. Whatever temple or idol that we build our hopes on will eventually crumble, but not if our hopes are built on God. What Jesus was able to see clearly was a perspective of history as he looked back of all the continuous events that had been woven together, all the different threads woven together into some tapestry where each thread happened to connect to the other thread, as we all are able to do as we look back at our life because of this, because of this, because of this, the cause and effect. But Jesus could look back through the eyes, not of a human being, but really through a perspective of God, of the whole sweep of history. And not only could he intuitively see that sweep, he also had a testimony, a witness given to him through the scriptures 
particularly the book of Isaiah, the prophet. Isaiah was written over a 400-year period, beginning in the first part in around 900 B.C., when Israel is apostate, they are living an unjust, uh, 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 they unjust in their policy and their uh, power. They are living on the ground of idols. They are turning the law into a, a pressure, a burden. And the prophet Isaiah says, if you keep doing it, you're going to burn. The temple's going to go down and you're going to be in exile. And then in 587, 400 years later, that in fact happened. Nebuchadnezzar came in and burned the temple to the ground and sent all the inhabitants of Jerusalem into exile in Babylon, where they languished for 100 years, feeling completely alienated, alone, and convinced that the world had indeed come to an end. And then 100 years after that exile, Isaiah speaks out again to those inhabitants. It comes from the 65th chapter of Isaiah. And he says, For I am about to create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. Be glad and rejoice forever in what I am creating. For I am about to create Jerusalem as a joy. From devastation and rubble to joy, and its people as a delight. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and delight in my people, and no more shall the sound of weeping be heard in it or the cry of distress, and no more shall there be in it an infant that lives but a few days or an old person who does not live out a lifetime. For one who dies at a hundred years will be considered a youth, And one who falls short of a hundred years will be considered accursed. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be offspring blessed by the Lord and their descendants as well. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, but the serpent, its food, shall be dust. They shall not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. In the end, no matter how bad it looked, Jesus knew that God is still the God of all creation, always in the process of creating and recreating a new heaven's and a new earth. It's what we mean when we say in our Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's what we mean when we ask and talk about God's providence through history. Not that God causes everything directly, but that God uses all things for bad or for good for a recipe of a new creation. It's what Jesus wants for us even the face of tragedy and loss or celebration and joy, that whatever temples we believe are the ground upon our being when they are shaken and turned to rubble, even death. We do not panic. We keep our heads. 
It's not the end. For God is not only the God of history, but God is the God of eternity. And as Jesus was able to look back through the realm of history, he was also able to look forward into the realm of eternity and see there the final solution of God's ultimate redemption and reconciliation and recreation. He could look across the whole seas of history into this eternal place and know with assurance and faith and hope that in the end, God would have the last word. I have a close friend whose faith wavers from hot to cold, depending on what day you ask. But he hangs in there because he has hope and faith that more than anything else, God had the last word. He came about this the hard way. He lost two children early, one at six to a terrible disease and another as a teenager to a tragedy. Each time after those accidents and losses, he would crawl into his dark grief hole and he would wait to be restored and recreated. And after the time was right, he was able to come out of that hole and find his breath and his life again and be restored and get back into life each time because he had a modicum of hope that what happens in this world is just a blip in the eternal realm of things and that God is even now making all things new. This is the perspective through which Jesus views all of history and a perspective that he offers for us as his disciples. No longer shall an infant who lives but a few days be the case, or an old person who doesn't live their full time, Isaiah writes. And we can rejoice that God is even now breaking forth with this new kingdom. For the infant mortality rate in the United States, still too high, is six out of a thousand, but in 1975 it was 500 out of a thousand. Susanna Wesley, the mother of John and Charles Wesley, gave birth to 19 children, nine died in infancy. Thomas Jefferson lost four of his six children when they were early, and his wife when she was just 32. The number is absolutely staggering. They faced death in a way we haven't, yet they were still able to engage a sense of hope in the eternal realm of things and to live fully still into the life that was before them. When T.J. lost his children, he would always crawl into that hole. But then he would come out, and his refrain was, my character is to attack, and when I am defeated, I retreat. But sooner or later, I get up and attack again. And what that's based on, you see, is this history, hope, even now in creation, that God is not in the business of blowing things up. God is in the business of transforming all the chaos into order. Lions and lambs eating from the same trough, no one destroying anyone on God's holy mountain, God molding this this incredible creation into something more God-like, even now. 
And he said this to his disciples because he knew that when the time came for them to face the dust of his own death, that the stones of their hope would be turned into rubble. And he told them that, that they would later be able to shake the dust out of their heads and to crawl over that one stone that had blocked that cave and found there an empty place where God had redeemed all history. This is the power of the Spirit of God that is for us and with us and in us if we allow it to re-energize us and to redeem us and to recreate us into something a little more God-like, Christ-like, full of hope and faith. Someone was telling me recently about a great book he was reading called You Are What You Love. The premise is, as I understood it, him telling me, is that we become what we desire, what we are passionate about, what we seek after, we are formed into that which we seek. If we really pay attention, we know it's true. And we know that what we seek isn't always so healthy. And what Jesus is suggesting, I think, is the second or the sequel to that book, and it would be entitled, You Are What You Envision. We are what we dream for. We are what we hope for. And what we truly hope for, of course, is the God that redeems all things. What we truly hope for is the woundedness and the brokenness in each of us will one day be restored into the glory of our own creation in the image of God. This vision lies outside the complacency and and competition of all politics and all presidents. It lies outside even the vision of history itself. It is the vision of God's eternal plan. And we can build our houses on sand and watch them crumble and be left hopeless. Or we can allow the Spirit of God's redemptive power to enter into us and to continue to invigorate us to get back in the game. Paul said, if anyone is in Christ, that one is a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. And even now, it's breaking in on us. If we have eyes to see. On Tuesday, we gathered outside. We left the church. We went outside into the sidewalks and took our communion table with us and opened it up to all those who wanted to stand for unity in the face of all that divides us, to be able to confess that the one who brings us together, that is Jesus Christ, far transcends all that divides us in our politics. And every single person that partook of that had this deep sense of gratitude and thanksgiving for that reminder. Ninety people came. We handed out cards. On the top, it explained why we were doing it. But on the bottom, we had a charge, and the charge was a charge that we should write on our hearts. Put it on our refrigerator doors. It simply said this from Ephesians 4. Therefore, it was our call to worship. Therefore, put away all bitterness and wrath and anger and wrangling and slander together with all malice. 
and instead be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other as God in Christ has forgiven us. This is the vision. This sounds impossible, but it is, this is the human possibility is that we can look forward into a future that seems absolutely impossible but not give in to the impossibility but instead choose the possibility because of God. This new creation starts with us now here. We can't wait for the president or the congress or for anyone else in authority. It is for us, each of us, to live into this charge We cannot give in to the doomsayers or to proclaim a future with no hope or that the world is coming to an end. Richard Lisher, the professor of homiletics and theology at Duke School of Theology, tells the story of a Duke oncologist there who is a close friend who specializes in some of the worst kinds of cancer. He's a world-class physician with a string of degrees and fellowships after his name And like all professionals, he has a business card. It has his name on it, but right where you might expect a list of his degrees, which could even say, I've been on 60 Minutes, he has only in boldface type under his name, there is hope. Lisher says, I have a feeling it's the card that keeps his patients going. It's the card that brings them and their relatives back to this little clinic again and again. It's the card that lifts their spirits when nothing else can. It's the message on the card that keeps you and me marching forward and climbing upward. If I had the resources, Lisher says, I would give a stack of them made for each of you. He's talking to the Duke students. Made for each of you to take into your ministries, workplaces, and daily lives. Only I wouldn't mention Duke or list your degrees, only your name, the name of Jesus. And underneath, there is hope. Amen.